even uh, getting a little bit violent with them. In Muslim countries, they are still uh, throwing in jail or beheading or absolutely banishing people. Uh, I've, I've got a teacher I went to Unity just across the street named Mitch Jolly. He knows missionaries who have been grenaded. Like the Muslims come, they throw grenades in the house. Boom. Like that's still happening today. But the weapons of tomorrow against Christianity are not going to be physical ones. The persecution of Christians is not in the next 50 to 100 years going to be them throwing us, throwing us in jail and cutting our heads off. That is going to die out. And what the church has done for the past several hundred years, I don't know how far this goes back, is that we've done an incredible job of teaching that Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way to heaven, the way to eternal life, the way to the Father. We've done an incredible job teaching that Jesus is the life. He's the way to the good life, the way to happiness. If you want to get rid of your sin and guilt and shame, you go to Jesus. Just to test this out, how many of you, just say for instance, how many of you can quote John 3.16? Yeah, duh. Like if you can't, you can leave. No, I'm totally kidding. Please don't. Please don't. That's why you're here. How many of you can quote John 3.16? Almost all of you. How about this? A little bit tougher. If I say, talking the books of the Bible in order, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, who knows what book comes next? Might have to sing a little song in your head. How many of you? Jeremiah. Perfect. Okay, perfect. Perfect. That's fine. That's fine. Cheater. No, that's fine. So everyone knows John 3, 16. Most of you know that Jeremiah comes after Isaiah. How about this? How many of you feel like you could lead someone to salvation? Yeah, sure, sure. Hey, worst case scenario, you open the book of Romans and start reading. You know, like you feel like you, you got this. Let's get a little bit harder. How about this? How many of you? If your best friend looks at you tomorrow and says, I don't believe in God, how many of you feel like you could prove the existence of God to him? A couple of you. Hey, that's a lot better than I was expecting. I won't lie. That's awesome. How about this? Tomorrow your best friend looks at you and says, I think you're just a smart monkey. How many of you feel like you could disprove evolution? A couple of you. Awesome. How about this? How many of you feel like you can prove that the Bible is a reliable historical document? A couple hands. That's a whole lot less than the number of people who can quote John 3.16 and knows what comes after Isaiah. Because the church has done an awesome, incredible, amazing job teaching that Jesus is the way to heaven and that Jesus is the life, the good life. What the church has done a horrible, terrible, truly bad job of doing is teaching that Jesus is the truth. And until we teach that Jesus is the truth, we're not truly worshiping God. We're worshiping an idol. So tonight, how many of you have Bibles with you? It can even be your phone. If you get it, I want you to hold it up. And I want you to open it just to anywhere. Anywhere. It doesn't matter. Perfect. Now close it and lay it on the chair beside you. We're not going to use them. And I'm totally serious. We have learned that Jesus is the way, and we have learned that Jesus is the life tonight. We're going to learn that Jesus is the truth. And there's three things I think all Christians need to know. First, we need to know how to prove the existence of God. Second, we need to know how to disprove the theory of evolution. And third, we need to know how to prove that the Bible is a reliable document. So that's what we're going to get into tonight. Now, I think many of you probably know a little bit more about this than you realize. Uh, Tom, if you will, go ahead and hit that first slide for me. There are several ways to prove the existence of God. Now, they're technically called the cosmological, the teleological, the ontological, and the moral arguments. 
you probably never heard them as that. If some of you say, well, I think I could prove the existence of God, uh, the, the argument you know, the cosmological argument, goes kind of like this. Well, if you ever look at a building, you know that building has a builder. If you ever look at a painting, you know that a painting has a painter. If you ever go in the grocery store and you see a, doesn't matter, carton of eggs, Cokes lined up next to each other, the Lay's chips here and there, you know that there was an orderer. Well, in the universe, we see structures, we see planets and, and stars and galaxies and black holes and superclusters. We see these big structures. We see beauty. No one would ever deny, like, no one would ever deny that a sunset on the beach is awesome. No one ever looks at that and thinks, you know what, I think I could do that better. No one does that. So we have structures, we have beauty, and we have order. Planets revolve around their stars. Stars revolve around the centers of the galaxy. Galaxies revolve in what we call superclusters. In the universe, we see structures, we see art, and we see order. Therefore, there must be someone who built it, someone who observes beauty, and someone who can order things. That is what we call God. Now, that's not a perfect argument for the existence of God. There's a couple of problems with it. We're going to talk about those next week. But the main problem with it is, well, if God created all those things. Who created God? That's the, the big problem with what we call the cosmological argument. We'll say if, if the buildings were created by a creator, who created the creator? And we're going to talk more about that last week, but the shortest answer is this. By definition, God is the first. There's no other way to define God. And in fact, when you ask the question, who created God, what you're really asking is who created the first, the uncaused first thing. That question doesn't really make sense. It's like asking how the color green tastes. It doesn't taste. It's like saying that uh, I'm a married bachelor. That just because you can order it in a sentence doesn't mean that it makes sense. So asking the question of who made God is a little nonsensical. We're going to talk more about that next week. But anyways, all of the typical arguments for the existence of God do have a, a couple of flaws with them. The cosmological has that one. Perhaps you've heard the moral argument. It says, well, in every culture in the world, we all have a moral system. It doesn't matter where you are. It is a bad thing to murder your best friend, to take food from someone who needs it more than you, and you have to post your opinions on Facebook. That's the moral law. And we might have different moral laws, but we've all got some kind of moral law. So therefore, we must have had someone who gave us a moral law. Okay, sure, that's fine. But these problems have, uh, or th these proofs of God have a few problems with them. There is one thing, though, that I, I really think has, has true, no, truly no counter-arguments to it. Now, I won't lie to you. I've never seen this. Go ahead and go to the next slide for me, Tom. I've never seen this argument elsewhere. I'm, I'm pretty confident that I came up with it myself, which means that it's either awesome or real dumb, all right? So here's how this argument goes. In science, we have three ways of knowing things. We have first what we call a hypothesis. A hypothesis is an educated guess. We say, well, if I jump out the window, I can fly like a pretty little bird. That's an educated guess. It's testable, and once you've tested that knowledge and found it not to be true, or if you found it to be true, it becomes what's called a theory. Now, we think a theory is an educated guess. That's not really true. A theory is something that has a pretty decent amount of evidence behind it. Now, evolution is called a theory, which we're going to discuss in a little bit. So a hypothesis is an educated guess. A theory is something I'm pretty stinking sure about. I can say if I eat way too much dessert, nothing but Krispy Kremes, I'm probably going to gain weight. That is a theory. You have pretty good evidence for it. You're pretty sure it's going to be true, but you might could be proven wrong. 
So we have a hypothesis, an educated guess. We have a theory, I'm pretty stinking sure. And then we have what's called a law. A law is something you're absolutely certain about. If I close my eyes, I cannot see. Perfect. You're a genius. That's a law. So there are two laws in science that are very, very important for the evidence of God. They're called the first and second laws of thermodynamics. Now, you are kind of going to be tested on this next week, so just prep yourself, all right? Get ready. The first and second laws of thermodynamics, dummy version, goes exactly like this. The first law says energy cannot be created or destroyed. That's real important, all right? What people do not realize is that energy and mass are kind of the same thing. Mass is just a form of energy. This is very interesting. So when we take gasoline, we put it in our cars, and we travel with it, we're converting that mass, gasoline, into energy, transportation. Now, we're very, very bad about doing this. I read a a study just this week that if we could take a teaspoon of water and convert it with 100% efficiency into energy, it would be enough to power your car to go all the way around the world or to power a Pentecostal revival for one night. Mass is a form of energy. So when we say energy cannot be created or destroyed, it, cannot, it doesn't have an ending point or a stopping point. It's always there in some form or another. What that means, and no one disputes this, is that something has been here for all of time. Something has always existed. Energy, even before what we call the Big Bang, I don't care... I don't care what you call I think when God said, let there be light, it, was, it probably wasn't a firecracker. All right? Call it the Big Bang. I really don't care. I'm going to call it the Big Bang just so we all know kind of where we're at. Before the Big Bang, the first law of thermodynamics says something was there. The question was, is that something physical? And that's a very important question. Because if that something is physical, then what we know as the Bible is untrue. Why? Because God is not physical. God is spirit. So the first law of thermodynamics says something has always been here. The second law of thermodynamics tells us what has been here. The first law of thermodynamics says something's always been here. The second law of thermodynamics says that in a closed system, when no new energy is being added, that system is always losing energy. Now that's the dummy version. It's a little bit more technical than that, but decent concept right there. In a closed system, when no new energy is being added, that system always degrades to a state of no energy, a state of what we call entropy, increased chaos. The first law tells us something has always been here. The second law tells us it could not be physical. Because if it was physical, we would have already lost all useful energy in the universe. What this means is, I wouldn't be here, you wouldn't be here, the universe would be at negative 273 degrees Kelvin, which is the lowest possible temperature, there would be no life, there would be no action, there would be no energy. We wouldn't be having this discussion. The first law says something has always been here. The second law says it wasn't physical. Now, a few, that's, that's all we know, okay? That's all we can truly draw out of those, but a couple of things that we can kind of deduce from that. So whatever has been here, in all likelihood, created everything that is now physical. It transferred its energy into mass. By definition, that would give this first thing, the thing that's always been here throughout all of eternity, power over the physical realm. Always been here, so it's eternal. Has power over the physical realm. That sounds a lot like God to me. 
Now, this doesn't prove what God it is. It can be any God. It could be Allah or Vishnu or Brahma or, or whoever. But this is a pretty decent proof that there is a God out there somewhere. Now, we have to get a little bit more specific on what God that is, and that's why it's important to know how to prove the Bible. But the next thing I want to talk to you about, which is very important in the timeline of humanity, is how we got here. And that question has two parts to it, really. Sometimes we just, we just call that the theory of evolution. Um, that's, that's not really a great description. So evolution describes what happened after life started. But we need a story for how life got here as well. And now this is one that, that uh, I'm going to say naturalists, people who only believe in natural physical things, have a really difficult time with. Because there's a law, not a hypothesis, not a theory, called the law of biogenesis. The law of biogenesis says that all life comes from life. You would love to read how atheists try and get around this to describe how the first life came about without life. It's pretty nuts, okay? But anyways, we are taught that evolution is this widely accepted, everyone believes it. Uh, Have any of you ever seen the Angry Birds movie? That is my favorite movie. Y'all hurt my heart. There's one scene in the movie where, you don't know what Angry Birds is? It's this stupid video game where you launch birds and you get the eggs from the pigs. Okay, it's dumb, dumb, dumb. If you play it, I think less of you. Think less of me. Think less of all of us. So the Angry Birds movie is this little animated, I think it's from Disney. Um, these, these pigs come and they take all the birds' eggs. And, and these are very like docile birds. Like They don't get mad. They're very calm. But then they're looking at this angry bird and they're like, hey, like you're our leader now. Like they took, you were right. We were wrong. They took our eggs. What are we going to do about it? And he says, I need you to get angry. You came from dinosaurs, darn it. And then it has this little angry bird that goes, Rah! it's real funny, all right? It's a lot cuter than I am. Evolution is widespread. This belief is ingrained in our culture, and it causes us to believe that everyone thinks this way. That's really not true. Go to the next slide for me, Tom. There are quite a few atheists and agnostics who have problems with the theory of evolution. The reason being is because it's scientific crap. But it's not as widespread as most people would have you believe, as, as television would have you believe or news channels would have you believe. There's quite a few people, and I've just listed four of them here, who think, and these people do not believe in God, only David Berlinski, the last one is an agnostic, the rest are straight atheists, they think God doesn't exist. There's quite a, quite a wide, diverse group of atheists and agnostics who don't believe in evolution. The first one I've listed here is named Lynn Margolis. Now, she was a professor of biology at several universities throughout her life, and her big contribution that we can actually draw from is that genetic mutation does not account for evolution. That's a big deal. So the way evolution works is that it says, well, so when you have kids or your ancestors had kids, those kids are a little bit different from the parents. That's called a mutation. Your genes are a little bit different. Maybe they're taller. Maybe they're shorter, have a different hair color. Sometimes they're born with an extra finger. That one's kind of weird. But it happens. These genetic mutations, Lynn says, do not account for evolution. The reason being, Jerry Fodor, the second guy from Rutgers University, wrote a book called What Darwin Got Wrong. He adds to Lynn's work and says the reason it doesn't account for evolution is because these changes over time don't result in life, they result in death. Here is an, an evolution that we have seen in, in our lifetime. Autism is a genetic mutation. Alzheimer's is a form of genetic mutation. Cancer is a form of genetic mutation. Death is a form of genetic mutation. What these people are saying is that, hey, look, 
the whole theory of evolution is based on the fact that these genetic mutations bring life, but there's a serious problem with that theory. And we're going to talk more about what that problem is, but just drawing off them real quick, they say it just don't work like that. These genetic mutations, 999 out of 1,000 times, don't produce life. They produce death. Now, the other two added small but meaningful things. Thomas Nagel from the University of California at Berkeley also taught at Princeton. The probability of evolution producing current life forms is pretty well zero. Um, that's pretty self-explanatory. And then David Berlinski, he is an agnostic, so he thinks God may or may not exist, talks a little bit about the fossil record. So the, the timeline of evolution says that this happens very slowly over very long periods of time. This is one of the reasons why a lot of Christians are pretty passionate about a very young earth, uh, under millions and under billions of years. Evolutionists are very passionate that it's billions of years old, because without those billions of years, evolution doesn't have enough time to happen. So what this guy does is David Berlinski and many Christians and agnostics and atheists, even Darwin, the founder of evolution in 1852, wrote that if the fossil record does not support my theory, that is the greatest blow against me that there could possibly be. And David Berlinski is looking at this fossil theory and he's saying, look, it's just not working. So we're going to talk a little bit more about some problems of evolution. But first I want to talk about evolution or the, the natural's big, big, big problem. It's the starting point. The law of abiogenesis, go ahead and hit the next slide for me, Tom, is really a big deal. We've never seen a situation when life came from something that wasn't alive. Now, in 1952, two guys tried to fix this. Stanley Miller and Harold Urey said, hey, we're going to reproduce the conditions of the old earth, the, the earth before there was life, and we're going to produce the building blocks of life. Now, all of life is composed of what's called an amino acid. So these guys said, look, we don't have to make a new life form. We just want to make an amino acid. We just want to prove that it can happen. So what they did, and it's, it's pretty genius, I'm not going to lie, they put a bunch of gases into a chamber. They've got some oxygen and some nitrogen and some carbon and some uh, ammonia, and they've got some other things that were present in the early Earth's atmosphere. They added a hint of water to it, and they hit it with an electric spark. Creationists everywhere cry out. They produced amino acids. They produce the building blocks of life. But there are problems. Go ahead and hit that next slide for me, Tom. Miller and Urey did produce amino acids. They did make the building blocks of life. But their amino acids could not be the building blocks of life. We have no idea why this is. No clue. No clue. But all of life is composed of one type of amino acid. There's a left-hand amino acid and there's a right-hand amino acid. No clue why this is the case. All of life is composed of the left-hand amino acids. That's real important, real big deal there. Because if you have left amino acids and right amino acids, they bond together. And when they bond together, life's impossible. Miller and Urey did create amino acids. The first big problem with their experiment is that they created left and right-hand amino acids. Their amino acids could not be the building blocks of life. In fact, all they could do is prevent life from happening. And it's important to know that they did not create, say, 90% left and 10% right, which would make life possible. They created 50% of each. They, their experiment was about as bad as it could get in that it eliminated all possible life. The second big problem, this is crazy. So, I bet you didn't know this. Oxygen is like super poisonous, y'all. Like super poisonous. Have any of you ever seen rust? Like, duh, yeah, you have. You're, you're adults, okay? That's what oxygen does to, does to metal. Like, y'all, trees, 
They breathe that stuff out. Even us, we have oxygen resistance. But there are people in modern times who've been trying to uh, lift heavy things or compete in types of tournaments or just doing scientific experiments who have gotten oxygen poisoning. We can die from too much oxygen. This is an incredibly poisonous substance unless you have a resistance to it. The problem with the amino acids that Miller and Urey created is that they did not have an oxygen resistance because you can't be born with an oxygen resistance. As far as evolution goes, you've got to uh, craft that over time. The problem is you can't craft an oxygen resistance over time because it immediately kills you. Miller and Urey had to have oxygen in, in their experiment to create amino acids. The problem is, as soon as those amino acids were created, first they're left and right hands, so they make life impossible, but Miller and Urey immediately, immediately had to remove their experiment from oxygen. Why? Because oxygen's crazy poisonous. So they needed oxygen to form these acids. They couldn't keep the, the acids in the oxygen. Now, if you are the first amino acid that's ever been produced, if somehow, by some fluke of nature, you are a randomly created amino acid, you can't just get out of the oxygen. You're destroyed. And then the third and, and biggest fault with this experiment and all sorts of experiments that have followed the Miller and Urey experiment, and there have been quite a few, is that Miller, <laughs> Miller and Urey did not prove that life can happen on its own. All that they proved is that amino acids can be formed under intelligent design. How do they not see this? All that they show is that there is no chance of this happening on its own. And even, even under intelligent design, it has to be a very, very intelligent designer. Because otherwise, there's too many left and right hand amino acids. Life's impossible. Otherwise, those amino acids are not created instantly with oxygen resistance. Life's impossible. They did anything but prove that life can have natural causes. So that's the biggest problem with evolution. Go ahead and hit the next slide for me, Tom. But I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that's the biggest problem with evolution because evolution is what happens after life starts. That's one of the huge problems of uh, a naturalist worldview, we'll say. One of the big problems of evolution, and this is truly the death blow to it, is that throughout all of human history, all of human history. That's a big deal. There has never been one instance where we've had a repeatable, testable, and observable case of new information being added to the genetic code. Now, this goes back to what some of our atheists against evolution were saying, that mutations don't produce life. What happens, or what they say happens in evolution, is that Mutations add new abilities. So, for example, if you develop, or if your kids develop gills, that's new information. If one of your dogs is born with wings, that's new information. The big problem with evolution, the true death blow, is that never once have we seen a repeatable, testable, and observable case. Now, those three are very important. If it's not, if it's not repeatable, testable, or observable, it's not science. It's called a myth. It's the same as saying you were abducted by aliens. All right? Doesn't work. We have never seen a repeatable, testable, and observable case where evolution has added new information to the genetic code. What evolution does produce on a regular basis is stuff like autism, Alzheimer's, cancer, and flat-out death. That is what 
evolution causes. Now, look, that's a lot of information. Are there any questions there? Cool, perfect. That's truly the death blow against evolution right there. And you know what? Maybe, maybe someday we will detect new genetic information being inserted in, into the genetic code. I'm not saying it's impossible. It might happen. But even if it does, we are talking 99.99, a lot of nines. That information is harmful, not helpful. And if it's not helpful, then it's not evolution. It's called the decay effect of sin. Sin makes us worse. That's what that is. So we've talked about how we can prove the existence of God. We've talked about how we can disprove evolution. And y'all, I'm trying to keep this as simple as I can. Everyone following? Cool. Awesome. So now I think it's very important that we know how we can prove that the Bible is true. Now I don't have, well, I thought I wouldn't have enough time to go through all of the archaeology and all of the scriptural evidence. So I've, I've collected some Bible verses here that I think reflect some good science. Now it's important to say the Bible is not a science book. Say it with me. The Bible is not a science book. Awesome. Remember that. Because there are a lot of places, especially in uh, poems like Psalms, uh, where we actually have songs or stuff like that, where the authors are exaggerating, where they're saying things, oh God, you hold up the earth on its pillars. So we have to take uh, out a lot of things that the Bible says. Even the Psalms do have some good science in them. or Some of the prophets have some good science in them. But we have to remember those are poems. They're, made to, they're, they're sermons. They're made to get a point across. So we have to take some of that out when we look at what the Bible does uh, talk about as far as science goes. I've tried to remove some bad verses. Now this one might be a little controversial. Go ahead and go to the next one, Tom. The Bible is not a science book, but it does have some good science in it, especially once we get out of the poems and out of the songs and out of the exaggeration and, and talk about things where people are saying this is fact. Now, uh, this is a point in Job where he's talking with all of his buddies who aren't that great of buddies, and they're talking about the characteristics of God. Now, this is a pretty interesting verse, Job 26, 7. He, meaning God, stretches the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. So as far as we can tell, Job is the earliest written book. Or, if it's not the earliest written, it happened earliest. Well, I shouldn't say it happened earliest. It happened early, before the Israelites left uh, the land of Egypt. Because what we see in Job is that Job is offering sacrifices for his children. That's kind of an Abrahamic type deal. So Job happened real early. We don't know how early, but real early. That's important. Because what Job's saying here, or what his friends are saying, is that the earth is literally, it's like, it's just hanging there. Like, it's not touching anything. Like, it's just floating. Which sounds dumb. Y'all, that sounds dumb, okay? Like, if I looked at you and said, hey, do you know you're floating? You're like, you're the dumbest guy I know, okay? So this really sounds dumb, and this is why all ancient cultures, let me say it, all ancient cultures had something that the earth was standing on. The Chinese believed it was on the back of an elephant. The Indians, not like Native American Indians, like India Indians, also thought it was on the back of an elephant. Depending on what Native American tribe, you ask, it could be carried by an eagle, it could be on the back of a turtle. Uh, a turtle is actually a pretty common animal for the earth to be on. The Greeks believed it was on the back of a cyclops, a big human with one eye that it was carrying the earth. Some ancient cultures thought the earth was on pillars. What the Bible is saying, maybe as far back as 1500 B.C., 3,500 years ago, perhaps as far as 4,000 years ago, 2,000 B.C., we just don't know where this lands, is that the earth is floating. It's on nothing. That sounds like some pretty good science to me. Go to the next slide, Tom. 
Now this one is really cool. Really cool. The life of the flesh is in the blood. Does anyone know how George Washington died? Anybody? How did he die? They took too much blood out of him. This is in the 1800s. George Washington gets sick. They think that when you're sick, you have bad blood. They call it bloodletting sometimes. They cut you open and drain it out. Other times, and I believe this is what happened to him, is they stick leeches on you. They leech it out, which, y'all, I'd just rather be sick. (laughs) I'd just rather be sick. In the 1800s, we haven't figured this out yet. This is about 1830, 1840, 1850, when we begin to grasp, like, hey, if you take too much blood out of somebody, like, they're going to die. This is super recent advancement, but the Bible has this all the way back, depending on where you want to put Moses, somewhere between, like, 1200 and 1600 B.C., 32 to 3600 years ago. God's telling them scientific fact, and it's there waiting for us to discover it. Do you know how many lives would have been saved if we had just read this verse and thought, you know what, I'm just going to take that at its word. For one, we'd still have George Washington. (laughs) I'm just kidding. He'd be way dead. Let's go to the next verse. Took you all a second. It's okay. We're good. We're good. This one's cool too. Isaiah 40, 22, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Now, you've probably heard, you've probably told your, told your kids, probably told your grandkids, because you have good intentions, that when Christopher Columbus sailed to the west, he believed the earth was flat. That's not really true. They had a pretty good idea back then that the earth was round. The first guy to talk about this was Aristotle in 400 B.C., and, uh, a Greek mathematician and philosopher, real smart guy. I need to start saying really smart. That's okay, we're good. I'll keep saying real and then an adverb. That's fine. In 400 B.C., this guy named Aristotle is saying, hey, I think the earth's round. And he does some math, and he figures this out. He confirms it. Like, they all talk about it in their Greek philosophing circles. They're like, yeah, you know what? I, th- I think this guy, I think he's, get- think he's onto something. I think the earth is round. Well, 300 years before that, Isaiah's writing, it's God who sits above the square, the cube. No, 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 the circle of the earth. And then let's go to the next one. This one's also pretty cool just because it's so, so new. This is two verses here, Job 38, 16, have you journeyed to the springs of the sea? And then Genesis 7, 11. Now the Job one, that might be, they may not be talking about scientific fact there, so I included the Genesis one as well. This is really neat though. Either way, it talks about springs being in the ocean. It talks about water running under the ocean. That sounds like it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, which is why we didn't believe that. We just thought, well, you know, It's just saying something. Well, in 1977, researchers around the Galapagos Islands, which is where Darwin first discovered his finches, first uh, began to kind of craft, fall in love with his idea of the theory of evolution. Researchers around this island are noticing, like, hey, there's water coming out of the, the ocean floor, and it's hot. They name these hydrothermal vents. Now we realize in 1977 that there are springs under the ocean. And in fact, studies just within the past 10 years have realized that there are enormous bodies of fresh water under what we call the continental shelf, which is the continental United States. There are literal springs in the sea. And the Bible talked about that, and we're just now figuring out this out this decade, the science the Bible has in it. So Tom, go ahead and hit the last slide for me. So science, and, and I've tried to make this as, as sciencey as possible. I want this to be something where an atheist is listening and they're saying, okay, 
I don't agree, but he at least follows the realms of logic. Now, science has some limitations to it. Science can only prove correlation. It cannot prove causation. Those are big words, over seven letters. What those mean is, no offense to anyone out there, shouldn't have said that. Some things you say and immediately regret. That was one of them. Science can only prove that something is correlated. If I do X, Y happens. If I flex my forearm in a certain way, I can close and open my hand. Science cannot prove that, that, that my forearm flexing causes that, but it can prove that there is a very high correlation. Science cannot broach the realms of common sense, all right? Co- uh, common sense does pick up where, where science leaves it off. So I cannot prove to you that God exists or that evolution isn't true or that the Bible is a reliable document. I can't prove that. What I can prove is that there's an incredible amount of evidence for the existence of God and no evidence that God does not exist. What I can prove is that there's an incredible amount of evidence that evolution cannot happen. And what I can show you is that the Bible repeatedly proves itself to be a reliable document. Now, I wish I had more time, and and perhaps I'll throw in some of this next week, uh, talking about the archaeology behind the Bible. There's some really cool stuff. The ruins of Sodom and Gomorrah, the ruins of Jericho, amazing stuff. Some historical stuff that the Bible talks about that's even now being uh, figured out, like, oh, hey, that that actually happened. Like, that was, was like, it's not just telling stories. Like, that's actually real. I wish I had more time to go through some of that, but what I can show you is that the Bible does prove itself to be a reliable document. I cannot tell you that it's 100% true, but I can tell you that it's proven itself true every time we've tested it so far. Because what you see here is that everyone has faith in something, even if it's just logic. And what we see here is that all of our beliefs, our core beliefs at their heart are what we call circular so, for example, my ultimate, the ultimate reason I believe in the Bible is because I believe in God and he tells me that the Bible's true. Technically, that's circular reasoning because the Bible tells me about God. So what I'm saying is I believe in the Bible because the Bible tells me it's true. That's circular reasoning. But everyone's deepest belief is always circular. Talk to anyone. Why do you believe in logic? Why do you believe in science? Why do I believe in logic? Because it's logical. See the problem there? I believe in proving things because things can be proven. That's circular. I cannot get us out of that cycle. That's the fundamental nature of humanity is that we are circular creatures. I'm not saying that you're overweight. I'm saying that's how our minds work. At our fundamental core, what we believe is always circular. We believe it because it tells us to believe that. doesn't matter if you're Christian, Muslim, atheist, whatever. So I can't prove to you that the Bible is true. What I can prove to you is that it is a reliable document that accurately describes physical things. I can prove to you that there's an incredible amount of evidence for things that it talks about, such as the existence of God, and such as the fact that we were not evolved, we were created. But at the end of the day, all belief comes down to what is the evidence saying and what can I choose to believe? I believe there's two parts, and I'm closing with this. I believe there's two parts to preparing for battle. And we see this in the book of Gideon. The first is that God proves to Gideon the truth. After God comes to Gideon, when Gideon's on the threshing floor, Gary was talking about this, and he says, mighty warrior. Y'all, Gideon's not a mighty warrior. He's a, he's a guy with loose bowels at this point. That's what he is. He's terrified, okay? He's frightened. 
When God comes to Gideon, he says, mighty warrior, he proves his presence. First he takes up the offering in the fire, then Gideon does the whole fleece thing. First God proves the truth to Gideon. The next thing God does to Gideon is he gets rid of Gideon's fears. Tonight I wanted to prove to you the truth. Next week I want to get rid of our fears. And the only way to do that is to go into the camp of the enemy. Remember that's what God tells Gideon to do? Gideon, are you afraid? Yeah, yeah. weak bowels, you remember? <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid. Go into the camp of the Midianites. Next week, and I'm just going to go ahead and prep you, we're probably going to have a tough time, some of us. Because part of next week, we're going to be talking about what other people say about Christianity. We're going to be talking about what the reasons why they say God doesn't exist. And the reasons why they say the Bible isn't true. Now, don't worry. I won't ask you any questions that I don't have the answers to. So we're going to get through this. This week, I want to equip you with the truth. And next week, we're going to spend some time in the camp of the enemy. But what I want you to do, start studying this stuff. Because if you're not worshiping Jesus as the truth, don't hate me. You're not worshiping God. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much that you brought us here. Thank you, Lord God, that you are the way and you are the life. Lord, you are the truth, and you do not ask us to believe in anything that you cannot prove yourself. Lord God, I pray that you help us to go out of here encouraged, knowing that you exist, that there is incredible evidence that you exist, knowing that we are special and unique, and you've gifted us with a soul, that you have not just placed us here and let us evolve, but you have guided and cared for us. And God, I pray that you help us to be more confident than ever in what your word says is true. Lord God, I pray that you be with us this week and be with us next week as we walk into the camp of the enemy. We see what others say about us, and then we see what what the truth is. Lord God, thank you for all that you've done. Be with us as we serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.